Valley Christian Church, how are we feeling today? <laughs> Woo! Loving the energy in here. It's great to see everybody tonight. My name is Stephen Francis. I'm excited to be here with you for week three of our series seven based on the seven churches in the book of Revelation. I think that this has been an incredible series so far. We've been learning a lot and I believe that we are going to be learning especially something important in our lives and this culture today. I believe that for each and every person in here right now and also watching online. Big shout out to all of our online watchers. Before we get into today's content, though, I want to tell you something that happened to me that I learned a lot from, an experience in my life that has changed it forever, and that's this. I like to play board games and card games. I'm sure many of you out here do too. Pictionary, Life, Monopoly, which, by the way, no one ever finishes a game of Monopoly. You just kind of keep playing until the person that's in the lead just wins, pretty much like that. But either way... Uh, I like to play games like that. I also like to play card games. And one specific game that I really enjoy playing is Would You Rather. It's a card game that you can get, and it asks all types of silly questions where you can just get to know the people that are around you. And I enjoy this game a lot, but there was one time in my life where this game turned violent. And I want to tell you about that today. It was right after Christmas, the birth of Jesus, celebrating how great he is in our lives. We were in South Carolina driving back to New York where we were celebrating the holidays. And as we were on the way back in this 11-hour car ride back to New York, we decided to play the game, Would You Rather? And in this game, we're asking each other a bunch of silly questions. Would you rather be the tallest person in the world or the shortest person in the world? Would you rather have our arm of an octopus or the arm of a crab. Stupid stuff like that. Still, we're having a good time. We're laughing. Until one particular question comes up that changes the trajectory of the rest of the car ride. And that was this. Would you rather have the nose of an elephant or the neck of a giraffe? Some of you guys might be familiar with this because I asked this a while back ago, but I asked this question, would you rather have the nose of an elephant or the neck of a giraffe? And we all started laughing in the car because we thought that this was such a ridiculous question. And someone in the car said, this is such a stupid question. Of course you would want to have the nose of an elephant. Of course you would. And then someone in the car said, no, that's the wrong answer. You want the neck of a giraffe. And from that moment, war broke out in the car. People that were team giraffe were yelling at team elephant, talking about why would you want the nose of an elephant? Do you realize that that is your face? That no one can ever kiss you again? That you look horrible in every Instagram photo? Like you are officially hideous. Team elephant was talking to team giraffe and was saying, why in the world would you want a neck of a giraffe that is completely useless? Do you realize how many doors you have to go through to get into each and every place that you like? You can no longer do that with the neck of a giraffe. By the way, you look stupid, always having to look down on people, and stuff starts to get violent. Names were being called. Someone drew a knife out at one point, and it started becoming more and more increasingly heated in the car. But the thing about this is, and the whole reason why I bring this up, is because this is a stupid argument. One that we refused to admit which person was right. By the way, it is the nose of an elephant. I'm just letting you know ahead of time. It's way more practical. That's all I'm saying. But either way, we had this argument, 
And what makes me laugh about this argument was not just how silly it was, but how crazy is it that we can have arguments about things that are so silly, yet when it comes to the things of God, we take it so casual. The things that God would have us actually fight for, we just say, you know what? If that's what you believe, that's what you believe. I respect that. It's more of a suggestion than an actual command. And this is something that we see in the life of the church in Pergamum. If you're following along in your Valley app notes or, or just with the regular Bible, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And by the way, if you have not been with us in this series so far, we are in the book of Revelation, which was written by a man named John. And John was actually the same John that walked with Jesus during his time in ministry. John is now about 90 years old, and he's living on the island of Patmos, where he has a vision of Jesus standing with seven golden lampstands and seven stars in his hand as symbols of seven churches that he wants him to send a letter to. So the first week we talked about the church of Ephesus, which although was a very abundant, very influential church, was actually having a cold heart towards Jesus. Then we talked about the church of Smyrna, who was being persecuted for the faith, and now we are here in the church of Pergamum. And Jesus writes this in Revelation 2, verse 12, to the angel, angel here, meaning pastor of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, the way he introduces himself is significant, but I want to first talk about Pergamum and why Pergamum is important. Pergamum in this time was considered the greatest city in Asia Minor and was the capital of that area for over 250 years. It had buildings at this time that towered a thousand feet tall, believed to be the first civilization to ever have skyscrapers in human history, and also had a temple built for Zeus. Now, I believe we have some pictures, actually, of those things. Um, first one here is this. This is actually an area of Pergamum. This was their theater right here. This was another temple that they had in that time period. And also, to this day, there is a replica of the throne of Zeus that you can see today in the area of Germany, which is here. Com beautiful structure, absolutely beautiful structure, and they had many like it in this period. This was just a way of seeing how influential Pergamum was. But something that was also very interesting about Pergamum was Pergamon was very similar to the city of Smyrna in that they had a strong political love for the Roman Empire. In fact, they also, like Smyrna, the church that we talked about last week, the area we talked about last week, also built a temple and an altar to Caesar where people were supposed to burn incense and proclaim that Caesar was Lord. And Jesus is saying to them something significant in this by saying, listen, you're in an area where it's very influential and very powerful, but he says that he is the one with the sharp double-edged sword as a way of saying that he is the one that is actually all-powerful. He is the one that actually holds everything in control, not Pergamum, which seemed to be the case in that day. But we go on and we see this in verse 13. I know where you live, this is Jesus talking, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who, has put, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. 
Now, there's a lot of talk of Satan here. And real quick, I just want to give you a little bit of insight. See, many theologians debate why it is that Jesus brings up that this is where Satan's throne is. This is where Satan is. Because there's a split debate where some people believe that he's talking about the thrones of these pagan gods that existed in the area of Pergamum. But then a other group of people, and myself included, believe that he is talking about Satan because this was a place where Christians were horribly persecuted for their faith. And this person named Antipas that he is referring to was somebody that suffered, was one of the first Christian martyrs, and he suffered by something called the brazen bull. The brazen bull was a horrible torture device, or execution device, where it was a large, massive bull that was usually made of brass or some metal, and they would throw somebody inside of this bull and light a fire underneath it, causing for the person in this bull to literally boil to death. And in the process of them boiling to death, and as they would scream from the pain and the suffering, there was an intricate acoustic system that was built in so that their screams on the inside would sound like the sound of a bull or the sound of a horn on the outside. And literally, people would just be going about their business, shopping, hanging out, and they would hear this in the city square, knowing that somebody was being persecuted or someone was being killed because of their faith in Jesus. This was normal for them in this time. And Jesus says that he sees the suffering that they are going through. But then he also shifts gears and says this. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, I need to stop right here because it's important that we understand what, who Balaam is. See, even though the church of Pergamum knew that Jesus was Lord, they were following these teachings of Balaam as well. And Balaam was a character back in the Old Testament. He was a prophet from God, but he was also a prophet for profit. And in the time period that Balaam was living in, Israel was extremely influential and they were starting to get victory and developing their own nation. And there was an enemy tribe called Moab that wanted to get victory over Israel. So the king of that time, his name was Balak, decided to go to Balaam and paid him money to cast a curse on the people of Israel. Balaam takes the money and he tries to curse the people of Israel, but because he is an actual prophet from God, he's not able to do it. In fact, every time he tries to curse the people of Israel, it turns into a blessing. So Balaam goes to King Balak and he says, listen, I don't actually have the ability to curse the people of Israel. However, I can do you one better. I can teach you how to do it yourself. And he says this to Balak in so many words and numbers. He says, you don't have to curse the people of Israel to conquer them. All you have to do is encourage them to compromise. And this is how you do it. He tells Balak, and Balak does what Balaam, sa uh, Balak does what Balaam says. It's a lot of Bs. And Balak goes to the nation of Israel and he says, listen, I'm your neighbor, Moab, so happy that you're here. Listen, would love for you to come to my area and enjoy all that Moab has to offer. And the people of Israel, 24,000 of them actually go there and they start not only uh, enjoying what Moab has to offer, but they begin following the gods that were not the God of Israel and then also participating in physical activities, if you understand what I'm saying, with the Moabite woman. And this caused for a plague to come down on Israel from God, killing all 24,000 people that participated in this activity, giving Balak the victory that he was looking for. 
And when we understand this, we see something that's very important in Scripture. And if you're following along in your Valley app notes, I want you to write this down. That there is a crisis when we compromise. There is a crisis when we compromise. See, we don't talk about Satan a lot when it comes to church But there is something about Satan that we need to learn here from Revelations and just in our everyday life. See, Satan, when he attacks people, has two major forms of attack. He attacks like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. And we see this in how people were being persecuted in the area of uh, Pergamum. And we see this also how they were being hurt in Smyrna. We see this in many times in our lives where sometimes we're being attacked and oppressed by things that are outside of our control. And sometimes we think it's God, but in actuality, it's attack from the enemy. But then there's another way that the enemy loves to attack those that believe in Jesus. One that I actually believe is way more effective. And that is convincing us to compromise by being a deviant serpent. And we see this in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that he made was good. But the thing that he was most proud of was man and woman, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. And because they were made in, in his image and in his likeness, he decided that he was going to create for them an area where they could have authority the same way in a similar form that he has authority over the universe. And in the process of creating all of this, he creates this place. And in the process of doing that, he says, listen, in order for you to have authority, authority here, I need to be sure that you also are able to be obedient here. We don't really always connect this, but many times the people that have the most authority are the people that are also able to be the most obedient. That's how it works in the kingdom of God. Obedience increases authority and disobedience decreases authority. And a lack of authority for others in our lives, and we see this many times in our culture, can create a lack of authority for ourselves. So Jesus, out of an act of love towards Adam and Eve, gives them the choice to love him back, but also in the sake of giving them authority, gives them this rule to follow, that they can have dominion over this entire world. They can have dominion in this garden that they live in, but they must not eat of this one tree that was in the garden called the knowledge of good and evil. Otherwise, they would surely die. And what Satan does is show up in the form of a serpent, and he doesn't threaten, and he doesn't challenge. All he does is say, did God really say that you weren't supposed to eat of that tree over there? And they say, no, we're not supposed to. Eat or touch it. And Satan's challenge is, I feel that God is holding out on you. I feel that he doesn't want you to be like him. So because of that, he doesn't want you to eat the fruit of that tree. And this is the thing that gets to me when I think about this passage, because many times when we're dealing with suffering, when we're dealing with hardship, the question that we ask ourselves is, why isn't God doing something about this? What is God holding back from me? But here we have a situation where Adam and Eve had everything they could have ever asked for, and still they were tempted to believe that God was holding something out on them. And unfortunately, they eat of this tree. And by the way, when you think about this as well, they weren't even hungry. They had fruit and things to enjoy all around them. But because of this idea that God was holding out on them because of this particular tree, they decided to eat it. And since they ate of that tree, we have been living in a world filled with tragedy ever since. 
And this idea of compromise, of saying, God, I think you're great, but at the same time, I don't trust everything you say. God, I think you're awesome, but perhaps there's something that I'm missing outside of you that I need to partake in has been the case for centuries ever since. See, when it comes to Jesus, I believe that there are two core values that we can learn from him. And this is also in your Valley App notes, is that when it comes to Jesus, we can learn that grace wins and that truth is relevant. Grace wins and truth is relevant. And Jesus embodies this truth so well. Jesus was able to have relationships with individuals that were considered outcasts, prostitutes, thugs, people that were dealing with hard, uh, very incurable diseases. Jesus was associated with these people, and he loved these people. But the thing about that also was that Jesus also cared enough about them to tell them the truth about their lifestyle. His relationship with them was not him saying that their lifestyle was also okay. I think many times we confuse Jesus with being a nice guy, with being someone who can just get along with everybody. But here's the thing. I don't believe that Jesus was nice in our context of nice. Because in our context of nice, many times we think of a nice person as someone that shows uh, a happiness, that shows uh, hospitality. But many times it's more in the aim of trying to reciprocate something. How many times as, as, when I think about my own life, was I trying to be nice with my parents when I just wanted 20 bucks to go to the movies? How many times do we have a boss or a coworker that gets on our last nerves, but we really need this job, so we decide to be nice to them? And in that same way, sometimes we could try to be nice with people that don't necessarily hold to the things of God. But at the same time, we never actually tell them the truth about what it is that God wants them to know for the sake of being nice. See, I don't believe Jesus was nice in our context of being nice. I believe Jesus was kind. That's what he was known for having or showing a tender and considerate and helpful nature used especially of a person and their behavior. Jesus was willing to show mercy and compassion on each and every other person while also being willing to speak truth into their life when they needed it most. And Jesus, in that kindness, was able to be somebody that was a source of life and of strength of people around us. And I believe that Jesus also wants to be a source of life in our life as well. See, many of us are Christians. Many of us are believers. So we hold to the fact that what Jesus says is true, that Jesus says that he is the person that is sufficient for us, that he is our ultimate provision, that if we have him, we lack nothing, that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith, that whatever our life is, we can trust in him because he has the ultimate say on how our story ends, that if we have ever suffered, if we've ever been a victim in our lives, we can trust in him to be the person that gives us victory. Yet at the same time, many times, instead of believing and trusting in that, we would rather just believe that maybe there's some other source that we can find that sufficiency from. Maybe there's some other place where we can find what it is that will satisfy us and make us whole. And as we continue to do that, we end up in a place where we are no longer trying to seek his truth, but just trying to be relevant with the times. 
See, the thing about being relevant is that there are so many things that happen that change so often, so quickly in our culture. You thought MySpace was cool, but now it's Facebook. You thought Facebook was cool, now it's uh, Instagram. You thought Instagram was the move, now it's Snapchat. I don't know what's next, but either way, you think that you have it down packed, but now something else has come up, and we're constantly trying to change and gravitate to it. But the thing about having truth that is relevant is that truth is always the same. Two plus two will always equal four today and 100 years from now. Fire will be hot and ice will be cold today and 100 years from now. The New York Jets will suck as a football team today and 100 years from now. It's just the fact it will never change. But the thing to understand is if all those things are true, then when Jesus says that he is more than enough for us back then, then it is true today. That if his law says that we can depend on him and that he will supply all of our needs, then it's not just true when it was written, but it's true today. That if he is the person that we need to love and to, with all our hearts, our souls, our mind, and our strength, then it wasn't just true back then, it's true today. And many times in the, in the spirit of our culture and in the spirit of compromise of trying to be nice, many times we see people with different lifestyles and we see people that do things that we know aren't necessarily with, in agreement with God's word. And if they're not believers, then we don't hold them accountable to that. But at the same time, we many times see what they have and we feel like, you know what, maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe I can live that life too and still have God in my life. Maybe I can do what it is that God uh, says is, is right, but at the same time also have this on the side for when I need to cope with my own pain. Jesus is trying to make something clear to us that if we don't trust in him, not just when we need it, but when it's, it's difficult, then we're losing something, we're missing out on something. And I think many of us, instead of trusting in his word, just kind of look at his word as more of information, a suggestion. You know, growing up, I grew up in a very strict household. You know, I, I loved my parents, but they were strict people. That's just how they were. There was never a time in my life where my mother would say, Stephen, go clean your room. And I would come back to her and be like, hey, listen, I heard what you said. I memorized that I'm supposed to clean my room. Um, I didn't do it, though but that's a good word. Thank you so much. I'm actually, I tell you what, mom, I'm going to find some other friends. We're going to have a Bible study on the importance of cleaning our room, but I'm still not going to clean my room. Life doesn't work like that. That doesn't work in my, that didn't work in my household growing up, and that doesn't work with God either. He's not giving us a suggestion. He's not giving us things just to memorize. He's giving us something to live by. And how many of us, knowing that God calls us to certain relationships, still continue to remain in those relationships we shouldn't be in? How many times do we see how God says we're supposed to handle our money, but because of our unique situation, we think we're exempt? How many times does God say that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, but the second certain people leave the room, we love to just tear them to shreds with our words? I believe that Jesus calls us to something bigger, and it's more than just information, but it's something for a better life. The same way he made Adam and Eve to live in abundance, he made his commands that we can live in abundance as well, and he wants us to take hold of that. 
So we go on and we see this in Revelation 2.16. He says to the church of Pergamum, repent, therefore, otherwise soon, uh, otherwise, excuse me, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus is saying that whether you like it or not, you will see that my words are true. And you don't want to be on the wrong end of those words. But Jesus also gives us hope. He gives us this encouraging word starting at verse 17. He says this, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, we don't really understand this in this context, but what he's saying here is so profound and beautiful that we need to be sure that we dive into this properly because what Jesus is saying here is that he wants to show that he is not only sufficient in our lives, but he wants to give us a name that matches the character that he has destined for us. See, in that ancient time, back in the times of Israel, there was a time when they were hungry and they had no food to get. So God himself provided for them bread from heaven for them to receive. And it was said that it was sweet and delicious. And Jesus says, whoever is victorious and fighting for me and being sure that they are fully sufficient in me, they will find a sufficiency. They will find an abundance in me that can only come to those that seek after me. Not from those that try to find God on Sunday and then do whatever they want the rest of the week. Jesus wants to let you know that if you live a life where you have been a victim because of what someone has done to you, because of maybe something that has happened to you outside of your control, he wants to let you know that you could be a victor today in him. Jesus wants to let you know that if you've dealt with scarcity in your life, if you have had debt issues, if you've had financial issues in him, you can find abundance today. Jesus wants to let you know that if you've dealt with worry and anxiety because of things happening in your life and you don't know what's going to happen next, Jesus wants to give you peace today. If you lived a life of distraction, if you lived a life that has been completely bogged down by every time you try to make one step forward, you end up taking two steps back. He wants to let you know that you could be disciplined today. He wants to let you know that if you felt defeat, that you are more than an overcomer today. And not only does he want to give that to you, but he wants to write it in stone. See in this verse when it says, I will, I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. What he's referring to is something that was happening in that culture. See, in that time, they were big on sports. In that time, they were big on theater. <clears throat> and in that time period, they had all of this stuff. But what they did not have in this time was Ticketmaster. So instead of giving someone an actual paper ticket, what they will receive is a small white stone that had a name written on it. And whatever that name was, it would be the name that would give them access into that event, into that feast, that festival. And Jesus is saying that whoever is trusting me, whoever finds victory and being sufficient in me and finding abundance in me will not only have bread from heaven that gives them nourishment, but also be able to have access into the things of me that no one else can have access to. A closeness with me that not everybody else can say they have. Something worth treasuring, something worth fighting for, something worth having for in eternity's lifetime. But the question now that we have to ask is how do we get it? 
How do we make sure that we live a life where we can have the abundance that God has destined for us? How do we get that stone with the name on it that shows that we are overcomers, that we are victorious in him? I believe the best ways that we could do that is to find ways to win in the fight against compromise because I believe it is a fight. I believe when Jesus says, the one who is victorious, that is a word used to show that someone had to fight for this. And you know, right now, there's this big fight that's going to be happening soon between a world champion boxer and a UFC fighter, McGregor and, and, and Mayweather. I'm excited about it. I'm sure many of you gentlemen are, and maybe like two ladies, I don't know. But either way, it's something to be excited for. And in the, in the preparation of this, sometimes I watch ESPN and even sometimes during the Olympics. And I really love the Olympics because not only do you see the event, but you get to see like the story beforehand, which I think is super interesting. It's crazy to see just some of the things that they do to prepare themselves for that epic day of battle. Michael Phelps eats 12,000 calories a day in preparation for his race. I try to eat 12,000 calories a day, but I'm not racing anywhere, so it's proved to be problematic for me sometimes. <laughs> Steph Curry, before practice, shoots around 500 three-point shots a day every time he practices in order to be the best in the NBA that he is today. I take one three-point shot, and I'm exhausted, and I want to go home. But either way, I see that those that are successful have a means by which they fight in order to see victory. And I believe the first thing that we need to know is this. We need to know his word. Because you cannot trust what God says if you do not know what he says. And I think a lot of us, many times we come to church and we hear the preaching and the preaching is great. But at the same time, if you don't know the word for yourself, if you don't know what God says about you specifically in your word, it is so difficult for us to live in the truth of which he's called us. Because truth of the matter is you don't know who, what you can do until you fully understand who you are. And who you are in Christ is way bigger and more grand than how you see yourself in the mirror each and every day. So we need to know his word. We need to know his promises. But then we also need to be able to fight for the prize. We need to be able to know what it is that is coming our way that keeps us from being able to trust God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And in the preparation of trying to fight for the prize, we need to see what weaknesses we have and to cut that bat off. For many of us, this means that we can't watch certain programs on television. Other people can watch it and enjoy it, but for you, you just know it's a weakness in your life. It may mean that you need to cut off certain friends that you have. And I'm not saying that we as Christians in here should only have Christian friends. I, I don't agree in that at all. But I do believe that there's just certain people in your life, Christian or not, that can negatively influence you to constantly do the wrong thing. And sometimes the process of overcoming that is just to back away. I believe that there are certain habits that you need to put into your life in order to be able to fight for that prize. But that's something that you need to pray for. That's something that you need to seek God for and come up with your own answers with. But the last thing that we need to do is to see yourself like you won. Scripture says that we are more than conquerors in him. Jesus says that we are overcomers. Jesus says that we are the head and not the tail, above and not beneath. The lenders are not the ones that borrow. What I love about all the things that Jesus says is that those are present tense things. 
Those aren't things that we will one day be. Those aren't things that we are one day hoping for. That is who we are today. And what I love about certain athletes, what I love about certain people is that sometimes it can come off as pride, but there are certain people that behave before they even get in the ring, before they even get on the court as if they won it already. And I think that there's something powerful to that when we say, my God is more than an overcomer. My God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if my God is that and he is living in me, then how can I lose in this fight for victory? How can I lose in this fight for my peace? How can I lose in this fight for my wholeness, for my health? I will trust in him because he already has the victory and I will behave as such. I think many times when we look at our situations and we just see how big it is, we end up compromising, trying to find a way to cope. But we need to start looking at our situations and telling them how big our God is, how much victory we've already had in him, how he already got victory 2,000 years ago on the cross. And because we have that, I have no reason to fear however big, however strenuous the task is ahead of me. See, the people in Pergamum, were in great suffering. And because of the suffering that they dealt with, decided that they needed to find another ways of coping. And in that time period, that meant that they would go to this temple of Dionysus where many of them would end up drinking as much as they wanted, end up doing whatever with whoever they wanted at the end of this feast. But what Jesus is saying to them is that you don't need anything else but me to get you through this. And I believe that God is saying the same thing to each and every person in here. That whatever situation, whatever circumstance, whether it's your fault, whether it's somebody else's, there is nothing else that you need to satisfy you other than the power of Jesus Christ. So with that said, I'd like to pray. Would you bow your heads with me? And I want to pray for each and every person in here that knows that there is an area in their life where they have compromised whether it's pornography, whether it's, uh, whether it's some form of lust or maybe some form of drug or alcohol, whether it's some form of a toxic relationship that you're involved in, whether it's the way you spend your money, whatever the case may be, whether it's how you see yourself, whether it's how you talk about people, there is victory for you today in Jesus to not only find deliverance, but to find full satisfaction in him. And I want to pray for you right now. So, God, I thank you for each and every one of these people. I thank you for the victory that you've given me in my life. I thank you for the victory that you've given each and every one of this person. They didn't know it already when they came in. But, Lord Jesus, because of you and your death on the cross, they already are free. They already are whole. They already are healed. They already, Father God, are restored to what it is that you would have for them. And I pray, Lord, that they see today who it is that you've made them to be. And they walk in that authority today. And with that authority that they also trust in your obedience to be satisfied and to trust in what your word says is true, what your word says to be right. Father, I thank you for what you've done in the lives of each and every one of these people. And we know that you are still completing a great work in us. I just pray, Lord, that we trust you in it. That, Lord Jesus, that we not allow ourselves to think, Lord, that for whatever reason that we need something else plus you in order to get victory. But I also want to pray for each and every person in here that maybe has not received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And you say, you know what? I have been suffering. I have been going to this person and that thing in order to find satisfaction. But I want to trust in Jesus. If Jesus is enough, then I want to know what that enough feels like. And Scripture says that if you declare in your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
And if that is you in this room right now, I want you to repeat these words after me. And these words aren't magic, but I believe they will show the position of your heart. Repeat these words after me if you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Dear Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you that you are more than enough for me. God, come into my life. I don't want to compromise anymore with things that are less. I admit that Jesus is Lord and that you died on the cross for my sins. Thank you, Jesus, for coming into my life. I'm excited for the wholeness in you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Valley Christian Church located in Hopewell Junction, New York. Please visit us online at valleychristianchurch.net for more information. Thank you.